Our first scripture reading is from Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 to 14. Daniel 7. Daniel 7 from verse 9. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And uh, this is a passage that is taken up in the New Testament in a number of places. And uh, also this language of the Son of Man coming. Very, very important term. And uh, one that has a lot of significance throughout the Bible. The Son of Man coming. Now would you turn please to Ephesians chapter 1. I'll read from verses 13 to 23. The text is from verses 15 to 23. And then I'll read from Lord's Day 19. Ephesians 1 from verse 15. The previous section is talking about uh, being predestined in Christ. And then verse 13, we pick this up. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Now our text. For this reason I too having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened 
so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he has brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And then in the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 19. There are probably uh, a number of sections of the Heidelberg Catechism that we could have uh, read in connection with this passage, sections on the resurrection or the previous section on the ascension. But we'll pick this up at Lord's Day 19 and especially questions 50 and 51. Question 50. Why the words, and sitteth at the right hand of God? And the answer, Christ ascended to heaven, there to show that he is head of his church and that the Father rules all things through him. Question 51. How does this glory of Christ our head benefit us? First, through his Holy Spirit, he pours out his gifts from heaven upon us, his members. Second, by his power, he defends us and keeps us safe from all enemies. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we uh, sang a little while ago about the freedom of the gospel, we pray that you would help us to uphold both the freedom of the gospel and also the importance of holding to the teachings of your word and holding to and keeping your good laws. Will you help us to steer the right course between the dangers of legalism on the one hand and a kind of libertinism on the other? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Covenant people of God, sometimes it's hard to interpret Old Testament prophecies because they often lump together events from Christ's first coming with his second coming and even some things in between. And they're sometimes just rolled together in the Old Testament as one group, as if there is just one coming, not two. And Daniel 7 is an example of that. In Daniel 7, one like a son of man coming. It doesn't say one like a son of man coming twice. It doesn't give us any details on the second coming uh, other than to say that the Son of Man is coming. Uh, this kind of thing that's so common in the Old Testament where these things are put together is sometimes called prophetic foreshortening, uh, sometimes called prophetic perspective. 
And it, it's okay that the Old Testament does that. There's no problem with that or contradiction between the Old and the New. Uh, simply that people of the Old Testament didn't need to know all of these details at that time. Just like uh, there may be many situations in your life where as you look ahead to something, you think, uh, you think of it as just one event to come, but when you get there, you find that it's got different parts to it. Uh, you know that you need to go and see the doctor soon, but later you find out that you actually needed to make two visits or maybe even more. And this perspective also affects our understanding of terms like the end of the age or ages or the last days, or the coming of the kingdom. And it creates a kind of structure in our view of the last things and how these ages, how the ages and how the present and future, how these things fit together. It's a part of the doctrine of the last things, eschatology as it's called, that is sometimes referred to as structural eschatology the structure of how these things fit together. And it is the sort of subject where, rather like the, with the doctrine of the Trinity, where people, where we may wonder as Christians, but how does this apply to me in a practical way? But as with the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, the difficulty that we have in seeing that point is uh, sometimes that uh, these things apply to everything. The doctrine of the Trinity, in a way, applies to everything in the Christian life. And so it is with this subject to do with the doctrine of the last things. The structure of it is something that applies to virtually everything. Well, in this text we have hints of that structure, that structure of the last days, and we're going to look at that under three points. First of all, the Apostles' Prayer. Secondly, the basis for that prayer. And thirdly, the implications of that prayer. The first part, the Apostles' Prayer, that's uh, very straightforward and uh, not uh, difficult for us to grasp. Uh, the basis for that prayer, that's still fairly familiar ground for us and uh, we should be able to uh, deal with that uh, because of that familiarity. Uh, but it becomes more difficult as we look at some of the implications and get into some of that doctrine of the last things. In the first place then, we, as we think about the Apostles' Prayer, we can divide this, his prayer for the Ephesians, into two categories. Thanksgiving and petition. Concerning thanksgiving, the Apostle Paul has heard of their faith and of their love. And not only does he thank the Lord for that fact, because... This is God's work in them. This is not simply a work that they do, and that's the same with us too. Uh, whatever we do that is good, any good work, that is because of God's work in us. And therefore, when we see ourselves or other people doing good works in church life, then we thank the Lord for that, because he is the one who deserves praise and thanks for what he works in our lives. And so recognising that, the Apostle Paul gives thanks to God for what he sees in the Ephesians. And not only does he give thanks for that, but he says he doesn't stop giving thanks for that. It is a, a regular feature of his prayer for them. And that is a good reminder to us that when we pray for others, uh, whether by way of petition or thanksgiving, that we don't just pray, pray for uh, things like 
recovery from sickness, and I'm not saying that's unimportant. It's good that we pray for that. But we don't only pray for what we might call things of this life, temporal things and physical things, and not only thank the Lord for answering such petitions, but also that we consider what spiritual works of the Lord we see in the lives of our brethren. And for that matter, what spiritual works of God we see in our own lives. And we thank him for those things. And not just on odd occasions. But we make these things a regular feature of our prayers. It's important that we do that for our own congregation. And not only in congregational prayers, but in our own personal prayers. And it's one of the things that helps keep us positive about our own congregation that we don't just focus on all the things going wrong in people's lives and pray about that, but we pray about God's work and give him thanks for that work that we see in our own congregational life. And it's encouraging. It's encouraging to us to be praying for those kind of things because it helps us see and be more aware of God's work in our own midst. And it's also encouraging for those prayed for. And we can say much the same about petitions. Here with this, this petition, the Apostle Paul asks that the Father and the Son may grant the Ephesians spiritual blessings, a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. He prays that the eyes of their hearts may be enlightened, uh, bringing together both what they see and understand, uh, but also that that should be a heart matter. And he prays in particular that they will see and, and understand that in three areas. That they will understand the hope of God's calling them, what that means, uh, and what it means for the future, because it's a hope in unseen realities. And also praying about the riches that they may see, the riches of the glory of their inheritance. That, in other words, that they not only know that they have an inheritance, but they know how great that inheritance that we have is, how deeply rich this inheritance is, and how glorious. And the third thing, that they know the surpassing greatness of God's power toward believers. Uh, not just that they know it's great, but they have some inkling of how surpassingly great that work of God is and his power in and toward believers. Now, uh, as I mentioned, we are looking at some things to do with the doctrine of the last things, and so uh, I'd like you to note at this point also that Paul's petition for the Ephesians has both a present and a future element in it. He talks of our hope, our certain hope, the hope of our calling, and hope is something that looks forward to the future, to the unseen realities that God's calling, bit by bit, is leading us onto. He also prays that they may understand the uh, future inheritance that we have in glory and its riches. And that's also a future thing. But he also prays that they may understand the surpassing greatness of God's power, which is something that affects us in the present as well as in the future. So it is in this prayer that we have the present and the future brought together. 
And it also has implications, as we'll look at a bit later, this uh, kind of language for the structure of the last things. The relationship between the present and the future. And here it's just hinted at in that this prayer involves both the present and the future. And that becomes a little more evident when we consider the basis of Paul's confidence and our confidence in these prayers. So in the second point, we look at this, the basis for that prayer. Our hope and our inheritance and our confidence that God's infinite power is directed to our benefit, that is in accordance with what he has brought about in Christ. That is because he sent the Lord Jesus Christ to be our head and representative and substitute. So that what the Lord Jesus has done is regarded as what we have done in and through him. And also in faith, of course, we are in union with the Lord Jesus Christ so that the benefits of that flow to us. What then are these works of Christ that are in view here? Well, we have the resurrection from the dead mentioned in verse 20. And we also have his heavenly session, as it's called, which means being seated at the Father's right hand, his heavenly session in the heavenly places, which is the subject of Lord's Day 19. But of course, if you talk about the resurrection of Christ from the dead, that also implies the death of Christ. So that's in the background here. And if you talk about Christ sitting at the Father's right hand, then you also have the ascension of Christ in the background of that, where he ascended to that place. All of Christ's work involves his infinite divine power. All of these different aspects in accordance with the working of the strength of God's might. And it is surpassing power, superabundant power. And therefore what we partake of in Christ are works of divine power and might. In this sense that the death of Christ is infinitely powerful for paying the penalty for your sins, that your sins deserve. And the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is infinitely powerful for giving to us spiritual life, life after death, and also a physical resurrection at the end of time. And the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, infinitely powerful for raising us up to heaven. And the session of Christ, his sitting at the right hand of God, infinitely powerful for applying Christ's work to our ongoing sins as he intercedes for us, keeping us close to God and sharing us with his gifts and giving us ongoing protection from our enemies, as question 51 points out. Not only so, but this also involves the exaltation of Christ as the one who is far above all other powers, far above all other rule, authority, power and dominion, whether in heaven or on earth. And question 50 also refers to that. Whether human authorities, elect angels or fallen angels, there is no other name that is greater than Christ's name. All created things 
Everything else is under subjection, in subjection to him under his feet. He is head over all things, but in a special sense, he is head over his church. Question 50. God gave him to the church to be our head and we to be his body, united under his headship. Uh, one other point that is made here in connection with this, and uh, that's this expression, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And it's in uh, verse 23. And uh, that is a, uh, an expression that has given rise to a lot of debate over history as to what it precisely means. And uh, there are probably well, at least three main interpretations of that. One is that it means that the church is the body of Christ, but it is Christ who is the fullness of God. A second view is that the church is, in a sense, the fullness of Christ. In this case, meaning that he is the complement of Christ in much the same way as a bride is the complement of a bridegroom. And then the third view is that this language means that the church is filled with Christ. Now, well, we could spend a lot of time on this last verse. I don't intend to do that because I want to make the point that for our purposes this afternoon, that whichever of those three views you take, that we see that we are united with one who is infinitely and surpassingly powerful. And everything is in subjection to him. And on top of that, he enables us to share in his fullness, even though we remain creatures in subjection to him too. And you see, that is the guarantee of our hope. And that is the guarantee of our inheritance. And that is the guarantee of our protection from all enmity, from the devil and from the world. What then does this have to do with the last things, and especially with the structure of the ages? Well, note that verse 21 speaks of Christ's authority, power, and dominion, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And these are very significant terms in the Bible to do with the last things, this age and the age to come. This is a truth that is necessary for our confidence in this prayer that uh, concerning our uh, present experience of this power as well as our confidence in future glory and a future inheritance as well as our confidence in our Christian hope being realised. We might say it this way, our confidence is that Jesus Christ is our present and our future. That is one of the implications of this prayer. Our third and final point, the implications. Now, this can be a difficult thing to understand, something that is both present and future at the same time. But it is perhaps not entirely outside our experience. Uh, we have, for example, we're familiar with the idea of an inheritance that is legally yours in the present, 
but you only come into it in the future when you reach a certain age, the age of maturity. So there's something present and there's something future. There's something that already now is in principle true. It is a legal reality now, even though you have yet to experience it fully in practice. That's coming in the future. Things may seem a, a bit more simple when we look in the Old Testament and use, look at this kind of language. And when we look, for example, in the Old Testament about the language of this age and the age to come, it's, it's, it's much more simpler. Things, the uh, truth is explained in more detail in the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, it speaks as if there is just one coming of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, at the end. And when that happens, Israel enters great glory. The nations stream to her. Isaiah 2 verse 2, Hosea 3 verse 5, Micah 4 verse 1, Haggai 2 verse 9, for example. And the Son of Man is then given everlasting dominion, glory, and a kingdom, as in Daniel 7 verses 13 and 14. But remember when the Lord Jesus Christ comes... He comes with infinite power. And I want to make this point in the, here, here right now, that this is, um, when, when we say that Jesus Christ comes with infinite power, that includes the truth that he is the sovereign Lord over the past, the present, and the future. He is the sovereign Lord over time and history. And therefore, it ought not to surprise us when the New Testament says not only that Christ has come and has been given everlasting dominion and glory and a kingdom, and we find that's the implication of Ephesians 1 verse 21, alluding to and picking up the language of Daniel 7 verse 13. But then when we also find in the New Testament that the Lord Jesus will come again with the clouds, also with glory and power and dominion and might and so forth, for example, in Revelation 1 verse 7, and also alluding to the same passage, Daniel 7 verse 13. On the basis of that, uh, it has been concluded by Reformed theologians over the centuries that the last days, taking this part of it, especially from the Old Testament, the last days begin with the first coming of Christ. Because those Old Testament prophecies speak about the end coming with the coming of Christ and all of these great things happening at the time when Messiah comes. So the last days uh, begin with the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's very evident from the New Testament that the writers of the New Testament regarded themselves as already living in the last days. So they also understood this. 1 Peter 1 verse 20, Hebrews 1 verse 2, 1 John 2 verse 18. But on the basis of other New Testament passages, we also see that the last days end when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And that's that detail that's expanded in the New Testament that there are two comings of Christ, first and second. And here we can think of some of the verses in say Matthew 13, some of the parables, where it speaks about uh, the end of things as being the judgment, when Christ returns 
at the end of the age. So we have that also to put into the picture. Putting this together in a structured way, again, uh, it's very uh, common in Reformed theology, a very common understanding of things. We say that with Christ's coming, his future kingdom, or we might refer to it as the future age, or we might refer to it simply as heaven. We say that heaven, the future age, the future kingdom, breaks into the present with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that you then have two ages that travel side by side. The age to come breaking in and travelling alongside this present evil age. But when the Lord Jesus Christ comes, he puts an end to this present evil age, leaving only the kingdom to come. Uh, all analogies are limited in their scope, but uh, perhaps you could think of it as two cars travelling parallel on the motorway. And uh, one of them's uh, a new model, the other one's uh, an old bomb that's got lots of problems. And they both travel side by side until the lane is closed off on one and the, the old bomb hits the roadblock and uh, can't get into the other lane. So that's a view that is sometimes referred to, not the uh, illustration so much, but the idea behind that of these two ages, the future age and the present age, travelling side by side until Christ ends this evil present age. This is sometimes referred to as two-age eschatology. And this, it's this rather deep and somewhat difficult uh, idea to get our head around, but it's this that explains why the New Testament speaks of us being already raised up with Christ after his first coming. Verses like Colossians 3 verse 1 forward, Ephesians 2 verse 6, 1 Corinthians 15 52. Because he has caused his future age with its future resurrection to break into your present life in principle. So it is a legal and spiritual reality that you are already raised up with Christ, but it has yet to be fully realised when he returns again. And when he returns again, you will also have your body raised up. Similarly, your inheritance is already settled, but it will be uh, entered into and seen in the next life. And your hope is currently in unseen realities that's already broken into your life, and yet you will see those realities in the next life. And the certainty of all of these things lies in this fact that Christ is the sovereign Lord of time and history, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And not only in the age to come, but also in this age. And the result of that is that his work, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his heavenly se session sitting next to the Father at his right hand, it has a certain effect both now and then. Amen. Let us pray.
Heavenly Father, would you give us a strong assurance in your provision, protection and salvation, both for this life and the next, based on the infinite power and grace of Christ's work and realising that this work spans the ages and saves saints of the past and the present and the future and will also put an end to this present evil age, leaving only his kingdom, leaving only the age to come, his kingdom in its fullness. We thank you for that certain hope and pray this in his name. Amen. The day of resurrection uh, began with the first coming, continues on into the next life, consummated in the second coming. From death to life eternal, from earth unto the sky. Hymn number 364, we'll stand to sing, and would you please remain standing for the blessing and doxology. 364. is our doxology. We go back to number 125, but this time we will sing the fourth stanza. 
the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Thank you.